0: I just can't see it. That's an expression that I have used many, many times. If I'm not wearing my glasses and Megan points out a new bird on the bird feeder in our front garden, I have to say, sorry, I just can't see it. Back in the days when I was having maths explained to me in school, usually when the teacher finished their explanation and looked at me hopefully, I had to say, I just can't see it. And so we use the expression when we physically can't see with our eyes, and we use the expression when we can't grasp some aspect of reality. In my case, maths, along with plenty of other things at school and since then. So we can be blind on two levels. Blind in our eyes and blind in our understanding. And as we turn to John's Gospel this morning, it will be helpful to keep those two varieties of blindness in our minds. Because we're going to find both varieties in our passage this morning physical blindness and spiritual blindness. And thankfully, this passage is full of hope. It shows us the eye opener. We're going to look at John chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 48. So if you're turning there in the church Bible, it's page one seven one zero seven four, or in the larger print Bibles, 1664. And just before we read this, let me remind you, we're joining a conversation that began back in verse 31 of chapter 8. This conversation is taking place during the festival of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And at that festival, Jesus has announced that he fulfills the two great ceremonies that took place during the festival. He has claimed to be the source of living water. And he has claimed to be the light of the world. And he got a good response when he made those claims. We're told many in Jerusalem believed in him. But we've also seen that Jesus wasn't too impressed with their belief. Because he immediately challenged these believers with the need to hold to his teaching. He told them, the only real freedom is being controlled by my word. And Jesus pushed things even further with these people when he said, if you are not controlled by my word, you're not children of Abraham, nor are you children of God, you're children of the devil. Well, by that point, these believers in Jesus decided they're not believers in him anymore. So let's read from chapter 8, verse 48 through to chapter 9, verse 7. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, And he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. This, they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this They picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is God's word. It divides into two halves and the first half is about the joy of seeing like Abraham. In the part of the conversation we looked at last time, a couple of weeks ago, Abraham featured quite a bit. This crowd in Jerusalem made a big deal about being descendants of Abraham. Now, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before this point in time. And he was the founder of the nation of Israel. The book of Genesis tells us when Abraham was still a worshipper of false gods, the true and living God stepped into Abraham's life, called him to follow, and made monumental promises to Abraham. We read those promises earlier. Promises about Abraham's descendants and the blessing that would come to the world through those descendants of Abraham. And this crowd in Jerusalem put great store by those 2,000-year-old promises. They put great store by their status as Abraham's descendants. But Jesus has just told them, you're not true children of Abraham, you're children of the devil. The reason Jesus said that is because they refused to believe what he is saying. That he is the one sent from God. And look again how they answer Jesus at the beginning of our reading. Chapter 8, verse 48. Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Earlier in John's Gospel, back in chapter 4, we learned that Jews and Samaritans are enemies. So much so that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And the Samaritans return the favor. And the reason for that mutual dislike was because the Samaritans did not accept the Jews' position as the true descendants of Abraham. Back in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well referred to Abraham's grandson Jacob as our father Jacob. We're the descendants of Abraham, she was saying. And here, these Jews say to Jesus, You're just a Samaritan at heart, trying to deny our great heritage in Abraham. You're just like them. And as for the stuff you said about us being children of the devil, well, you must have a demon yourself, Jesus, to say that about us children of Abraham. And so their point is, Jesus, you are trying to do us out of what God promised us. You're trying to separate us from the blessings God promised us. You're trying to tell us our descent from Abraham means nothing if we don't rely on you. You're an enemy of Abraham's descendants, Jesus. That's their accusation against Jesus. And the rest of this section, Jesus responds by saying, not at all. I'm not trying to do you out of the blessings promised to Abraham's descendants. I'm the only way to receive those blessings. In verses 49 to 51, Jesus says, I'm not here to undermine those promised blessings. I am here to honor the Father who made those promises. On his behalf, I'm here to offer you deliverance from death. I'm not your enemy. The crowd's response to that is to say, oh, deliverance from death. So you think you're greater than our father Abraham now, do you? You think you're greater than the prophets who repeated and expanded on God's promises to Abraham. Abraham and the prophets all died. But you've got something better, have you, Jesus? There you go again setting yourself up in opposition to our heritage. But look what Jesus says to this crowd who are accusing him of trying to deny the promises to Abraham. He tells them he's certainly not come to derail the blessings God promised in the Old Testament. Look down to verse 56, where Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. What does that mean? How did Abraham rejoice at the thought of seeing Jesus' day? How did he in fact see it? Well, if Jesus had said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing the day of the Lord... These people would have had no problem with that. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is mentioned often. It was the time promised by the prophets when God's promises would come true. And although Abraham probably never heard the phrase, the day of the Lord, he certainly looked forward to what the prophets meant by the day of the Lord. God had promised Abraham prosperity and blessing And that's what the day of the Lord would bring. So this crowd in Jerusalem would have had no problem with the idea that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of the day of the Lord. But here, notice, Jesus calls the day of the Lord, my day. He's saying, I'm the one who brings what God promised. I'm the one Abraham looked forward to. Okay, But what does Jesus mean when he then goes on to say Abraham saw my day and was glad? Is Jesus saying he had come to earth before and fulfilled God's promises at some point during Abraham's lifetime, 2,000 years before this? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. But putting it that way helps us understand what he is saying. If we went back and read the story of Abraham, we'd find that along with those promises of prosperity and blessing, God also gave Abraham a son who became heir to those promises. Or more accurately, God eventually gave Abraham a son. The promises came when Abraham was 75 years old and he had no children the son, Isaac, arrived when Abraham was 100 years old. Was Abraham glad when that son was born? Well, the name Isaac means laughter. The boy's name refl- reflects the gladness of his parents. When, after 25 years of waiting, the promised son arrived, they were glad. And here, when Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and was glad, surely what he means is, 2,000 years ago, Abraham's gladness was not just about Isaac. Abraham's happy laughter was because this boy, Isaac, was the heir to God's promises. But Abraham knew Isaac wasn't the end of the story. Isaac was still just one man. He was not yet the great nation God had promised. And he certainly didn't bring blessing to all peoples on earth. But Isaac was proof that what God had promised was coming true. So Abraham was glad, not just because of Isaac. Abraham was glad Because Isaac was a down payment of what was still to come. And here in John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus is saying he is the ultimate object of Abraham's gladness. Abraham knew Isaac wasn't the end of the story, Abraham was glad about Isaac. Because when Isaac arrived, Abraham knew God was going to see that story through to the end. So Abraham's gladness is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is the one who will bring Abraham's story to its glorious climax. He will bring God's blessing to all peoples on earth. And so today... To see like Abraham is to see that Jesus brings the blessings promised to Abraham. Earlier we read the Apostle Paul's statement that whatever promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And that's the point Jesus himself is making here. And if you ask at this point, well, so what? Why have you spent 15 minutes trying to explain that to us? Here's the so what. Isn't it true that human beings today are looking for a sense of connection? We want to know that we are more than just a little piece of driftwood bobbing around by ourselves in the vast ocean of history. Don't people struggle with that? They struggle with a sense of rootlessness, isolation. And not just isolation from one another, but isolation from any kind of bigger story. Don't we feel the need for more than just what I am in myself, in my little place? We want to see our lives slotting into a bigger picture, a greater picture, a picture that has significance. Isn't that why people get into researching their ancestry? It used to be just Americans who did that kind of thing, but aren't we doing it too now? Isn't that why people get into collecting vintage stuff of all different kinds? I know not everyone stops to think about why they're buying vinyl records or retro Air Jordan shoes or going to concerts by pop acts from the 1980s. Maybe we don't think about why we want to do that kind of thing. But doesn't it boil down ultimately to a desire to connect with what has gone before? You can call it nostalgia if you want, but it's, it's a desire to tap into something that has a history. Increasingly, I think, we are a society that longs for roots. Roots. And so aren't Jesus' words here good news for us? Not just for us here, but for our society. The Jews, the descendants of Abraham, have as long a history as you could wish for. They have deep, deep roots. And although you and I may not have any physical connection to that ancient story, we may not have Jewish blood, But through Jesus and his blood, we can find our place in the story. It can become our story. Through faith in Jesus, we can become heirs of the blessings promised to Abraham. That's really good news. But not everyone sees it that way. Here at the end of John chapter 8, the crowd in Jerusalem misunderstands what Jesus is saying. He's told them, Abraham saw my day. And in verse 57, the crowd flip it around and say to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham 2,000 years ago? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered them. Before Abraham was born... I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. When Jesus says, I am, he's doing what we've heard him do before. He is claiming to be God. In the Old Testament, God used the words, I am he, to announce himself as the one and only God. And seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus uses those words to refer to himself. And the reaction of the crowd shows they know exactly what Jesus is claiming here. Stoning was the punishment for blasphemy and that's what they try to do. Because they're convinced Jesus has no right to claim he's God. They're blind to who Jesus really is they don't see like Abraham saw. And they're not willing to see. They would rather kill Jesus than take him at his word. And as the chapter ends, they're not just spiritually blind, they can't see Jesus physically either. He hides himself and he slips away from them. We're not told if this was a miraculous thing that Jesus did or if he got away in some ordinary way. We're not given details on that, but I'm sure John wants us to see the symbolism of this situation. These people who refuse to see Jesus for who he is are finally unable to see him at all. And that's a warning for us. We're all invited to come and experience the kind of joy Abraham experienced over the fulfillment of God's amazing promises. We're invited to have that. But if we refuse to come and see, then sooner or later Jesus will slip away from us too. John chapter 8 ends with a crowd who can't see. And John chapter 9 begins with one man who can't see. Throughout this book, John has recorded a series of signs Jesus performed. They are miracles, but they're not random miracles. They're miracles that show something of who Jesus is. Each of them reveals some aspect of Jesus' glory. John has selected just a few of Jesus' miracles to build up a picture of him. Here in chapter 9, we have another of these signs, and it's no accident at all that this sign comes right after we've heard about the blindness of the crowds at the temple. As they refuse to see Jesus for who he is, as they find themselves looking ultimately like idiots, standing there holding rocks in their hands with no one to throw them at because Jesus has slipped away from them. Immediately after that display of blindness, we're told about the work of God that enables us to see. Look again at chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Here in verse 2, the disciples are probably the 12 disciples who were closest to Jesus. They see that this man was born blind, Somehow they know that. And they want to know whose fault it is. In other words, they subscribe to a view of the world that says, if you suffer in some way, it must be punishment for a particular sin. It's like the idea of karma. Do something bad, and something bad will happen to you. If something bad happens, has happened to you, you must have done something bad. That's the way the disciples are thinking about this. Now the Bible agrees that sometimes when something bad happens to you, it's because you've done something bad. Sometimes. Back in chapter 5 of this book, when Jesus healed a paralyzed man, Jesus said to the man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. In that particular case, Jesus discerned a link between the man's paralysis and some sin that he had committed. But Jesus himself and the Bible as a whole deny that every instance of something bad happening to you is because you've done something bad. The Bible refuses to make it a rule that suffering can always be traced to some specific sin in your life. The book of Job, in the Old Testament, that is one long, strong denial of any kind of rule like that. Job is presented to us as a blameless and upright man, and yet he suffers terribly. And here in our passage, we see Jesus denying there's any rule that suffering always results from a specific sin. The disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Apparently, the disciples believe it is possible to sin in the womb. So to their thinking, it might have been the man himself who sinned before birth in some way. They want Jesus to reveal the culprit. Who is the sinner in this situation? But Jesus says in verse 3 neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, Jesus is not claiming the man and his parents are perfect. He's simply saying the man's condition is not punishment for any particular sin. In fact, Jesus immediately shifts the focus. Away from what might have caused the man's blindness. And Jesus puts the focus onto the fact that God is on top of this man's situation. And God is at work in the man's situation. That's a helpful perspective for us. Because you and I can get ourselves tied up in knots, can't we? try to make sense of suffering in this world? What's the reason for it? Why is that person going through what they're going through? Why am I going through what I'm going through? Why is this world situation happening that's causing so much suffering? We ask those kind of questions, but often we are not going to get the answer to those questions. But what we are given is the assurance that God is on top of the situation, whichever situation it is. He's on top of it. It didn't take him by surprise, and he is at, he is at work in the situation. And here, it turns out Jesus himself has a particular work to do in this man's situation. In verse 4, Jesus says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's tempting for you and I to read those verses and apply them to ourselves right away and say we need to work for Jesus which is true of course but that is missing the point of what Jesus says here in this context the night that's coming is Jesus' death on the cross the day is the time Jesus has on earth before his death Jesus is talking here about his short time in the world before he returns to heaven. So yes, when Jesus rises from the dead on the other side of the cross, and when he returns to his father, then the disciples will have work of their own to do. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is true. But this work is something Jesus must do before the cross this work will be a sign that Jesus is the light of the world. And it's obvious there is special significance to this miracle because Jesus doesn't do it in a straightforward way. We know that he could heal this blind man with just a word. He healed people that way earlier in John's Gospel. Jesus could heal this man with just a word. But instead, verse 6 tells us, Jesus spits on the ground, he makes mud, and then he plasters it on the man's eyes. Why would Jesus do that? Well, verse 5 has reminded us he is the light of the world. And we've noticed earlier in John how that traces all the way back to creation. Creation. To the light of God Himself that was there before the sun was made. And here another connection is being made with the first creation in Genesis, where God made the first man from the mud. Genesis chapter two. Now this blind man in Jerusalem already has a body. He doesn't need to be created from scratch like Adam was. But this man does need God's new creation power to give sight to his blind eyes. And as with the other miracles in John's Gospel, this miracle is a sign of something greater. It points beyond itself. It shows Jesus has been sent by God the Father to do God's new creation work. To give spiritual sight. To overcome the spiritual blindness we've witnessed at the end of chapter 8. The blindness that doesn't see Jesus for who he is. That's a blindness we are all born with. We all need God's new creation work to give us spiritual sight. And that is work Jesus came to do. He gives sight to a world born blind. It's a work only Jesus can do. We cannot make ourselves see spiritually, any more than this man in Jerusalem could make himself see physically. But, notice in verse 7, the man did have to respond to Jesus. He did have to take Jesus at his word. In his case, that meant going to the pool of Siloam and washing the mud out of his eyes. Then he was able to see. So was this Jesus' work? absolutely it was and at the same time did this man have a responsibility to put his faith in Jesus word by doing what Jesus said walking being guided to that pool at the other end of the city and washing did he have to respond in that way absolutely does the Bible explain exactly how those two things fit together God's sovereign work to save and open eyes and our human responsibility to respond. Does the Bible unravel all that and explain it for us? No, it doesn't. It simply tells us we are blind. Only Jesus can open our eyes. And in order to have our eyes opened, we have to trust in Jesus. if we want the joy of seeing like Abraham saw, if we want the kind of joyful laughter that comes from realizing all of God's promises are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, if we want to have that joyful sight, then we have to respond to Jesus' word. We have to trust that he is who he says he is. And if you have done that, and many of you have, can you feel the relief and the lightness in your heart that comes from this? This truth that in Jesus you have a privileged place in the oldest, greatest story there is. The story of God's work to renew his creation from the darkness and the curse of sin to the brightness and glory of God's blessing. Abraham laughed with joy and his wife joined in when Isaac arrived. As the first installment of God's blessing, you and I have much more reason for laughter We have Jesus, the Son who delivers everything God promised. Last week I heard about a class of secondary school pupils who were encouraged to improve their mental health by looking in the mirror and saying, you are awesome. What a dead end that is. For any of us. As Christians, our confidence has a much, much better foundation than that. In the midst of our stresses and worries, we can stop. We can take a deep breath. And we can give thanks that we belong to Jesus. The truly awesome one. the one who leads us into all that God has promised. You and I may not understand what's going on in the news. Usually we don't. We may not understand what's going on in our lives, the lives of our loved ones. But we do know that God has got it. God is at work in it because of Jesus. So let's bring our thanks to him as we sing together his praise. Christ, our hope in life and death, and then cornerstone. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.